Well, if you would be so kind as to turn in your copy of the Scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, right there in chapter 1. Taking a break from our sermon series in the book of Romans today, so that we can look at a sermon entitled, Shining in the Shadows, as we acknowledge and celebrate some great women of the faith. And we're going to start by looking at Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. So if you'd be so kind as uh, a sign of respect and honor and reverence to the reading of God's holy word, would you stand at this time and read along silently as I read aloud the gospel of Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says to us today. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of, to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thanking you for the gift of being able to hear from you. We are thankful for access to your throne through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're thankful to access to your voice through the word that we just read. We can hear you speak, Lord, to us as we read your word once again. And we take that as no small thing, acknowledging that there are many today without that privilege. And we hold it and we read it and we love it and we hear it. Remind us today of what a, what a privilege it is to have access Yes, to your throne and also to your word. Would you use your word in our lives to change us today? Call things to our attention that we would not have otherwise seen were it not for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Honesty check. Raise your hand if when you read through the Bible and you come across genealogies, you know where I'm going with this? You're a, good. Uh, hands are already going up. You have memorized them. Good. Excellent. Gotcha. Raise your hand if you are a genealogist skimmer or a skipper. Be honest. It's Sunday. You're in church. You're a genealogy skimmer or a skipper. It's, it's fairly understandable, okay? It's fairly understandable. Many people skim or entirely skip genealogies when they read the Bible. And at first glance, they just look like long lists that someone decided to include for some fun facts or something. And you kind of wonder, like, do I really have to read this? Do I really, can I just skip to this? Like right at the, it seems like what I just read got interesting right after I stopped, right? Because right after I stopped, what have been verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That's kind of when the rubber meets the road, right? That's what I want to hear. So you kind of just skip, okay, blah, 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 Mary, Joseph, Jesus. Yes. Okay, good. Now let's just go to verse 18. But you know what? Genealogies are actually pretty important for a variety of reasons. First of all, genealogies can help us work out timelines. Uh, Not necessarily this one in particular, but there are others in the Bible that include how long somebody lived. And then you can say, okay, well, if this person lived this long and then this event took place during this person's life, it probably took place in approximately this year. Okay, there's, there's a variety of ways that we can use the numbers. There's a whole book called Numbers, but the numbers that the Lord has given to us and God doesn't really fudge on the numbers, right? There's no ish in the Bible. Like, oh, Jesus will be up in three-ish days, give or take. He'll be out that grave. No, when Jesus was supposed to rise from three days, he rose in three days. So there are many things that we can look at when it comes to genealogies and learn a lot from them. But I want to call something to your attention. Uh, I mean, they also confirm prophecies. That's also very important. And these might be the more apologetic, if you will, reasons, the more scholarly reasons of why we should read and understand genealogies. Can I call something to your attention, though, something that hit me when I was reading through these genealogy uh, just to prepare? We see that God cares about people individually. He knows us by name. See, there's many times that you read in the Bible, like in John chapter 3, that for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And you say, wow, God really cares about us. And that's great reason to rejoice. That's great reason to celebrate. God really cares about us. But it becomes a little more important or a little more personal when I realize God cares about us and he cares about me. I remember specifically, today is Mother's Day, happy Mother's Day, specifically my mom preaching the gospel to me, okay, having gone through a a, a terrible season in her life where her marriage had fallen apart, now she's a single mom, and somebody came into her life to tell her that she was a sinner in need of a savior. Do you know who that someone was at first? It was her ex-mother-in-law. And my mom's like, check you out. Okay, he leaves and I need a savior. Let me tell you who he's going to need a savior in like two seconds, lady. And this lady comes up and preaches good news to my mom. And my mom doesn't immediately accept. She immediately gives her one of these, you know, 
one of these, like, thank you. But God uses that. God uses that, brings somebody else into her life, brings somebody else into her life, brings somebody else into her life. And eventually, long story short, my mom is saved. And then she preaches the gospel to me and my sister. And it's fine. I mean, we're little at the time. It's, yay, God, mom cries a little less or maybe for different reasons now. And, 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 and she's given us keys for kids. And I had, like, here I am on my, like, I have my He-Man lunchbox, like any kid worth his salt would have had. That thing was, that thing could have taken out a truck. You remember when lunchboxes were legit, when they were made of, like, real metal? Does anybody remember that? Okay, in a thermos that could hold lava or would keep things cold forever. So I had this, and my mom would stick scripture memory stickers on that, which made for super cool times at the lunch table. But it was good. And I had a GoBots lunchbox. She put it on that. She put little notes. She just didn't, anything that God, Jesus, God, God, Bible, God, she did, great, give me that. Things probably that may have even been heretical, but just things that she's just like, but whatever, that's God. She's just throwing it in our face because God had transformed her life so much. But I remember a specific day, a specific day, when what my mom had been telling me became personal to me. And it wasn't that Jesus came into the world and died for sinners, although that's true. That day, it was Jesus came into the world and died for Peter. It was personal. It wasn't that everybody needed a savior. That's true. It was Peter needed a savior. There was a name attached to that good news. Genealogies remind us that our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who loves the sheep, calls us each what? By name. By name. He's not rustling around cattle or horses and just t- taking care of the herd. He's not just making sounds. You know, come on. Like he's calling us each by name. So I would encourage you as you look at the genealogies throughout Scripture and as you're tempted to skim and skip, think about this. Wow, God cares about names. God cares about individuals. God sent his son to the world to die for the world. But for specific, he had a people within that world that he specifically loves, specifically cares for by name. And genealogies reminds us that God loves people, but that he loves you and you and you and me. So as we take a break from Romans, most appropriately on Mother's Day, to seek to honor some of the greatest heroes of the faith, uh, the genealogy that we just read in Matthew chapter 1 contains the names of five women. Five women. And they all have something in common that we'll look at a little bit later. But in my opinion, uh, which is uh, one of them stands out from the rest. Five ladies listed in the genealogy, but only one is mentioned by the writer of Hebrews in what is called the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So of these five women, I'm going to focus on Rahab. Happy Mother's Day. We're going to focus on Rahab the prostitute. Because there's a lot for us to learn and a lot for us to remember. So what I want you to do is I want you to keep your finger in Matthew 1 or just mark it. But I want you to turn back to the book of Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. And while I do that, can I ask someone to just take a look at the thermostats on the side and over here. And just see if the system is off. If it is, just put it on cool. Am I the only one who's feeling that? Maybe I am. Thank you. 
Sometimes it's off. We have to turn them on. We might have forgotten to turn them on today. Joshua chapter 2. And what I want to do is give you a little bit of background. Ah, that sounds like relief coming. Um, What I want to do is give you a little bit of background as you turn there to Joshua 2 and let you know what has happened uh, because we don't have, obviously don't have the time. We've not been spending time in the Old Testament to lead us up to this point. Uh, but at this point in the book of Joshua, uh, Moses is dead, and Joshua has assumed command of the Lord's people. Now, prior to Moses passing and Joshua uh, having taken over command post of the Lord's people, uh, Moses had sent spies into what would be the promised land. And the spies went in there to check it out and to see what it would be like to come back and then give a report to the people. This happens in Numbers chapter 13. And they report back and they say the land is great. It's really a great place. It's flowing with milk and honey, just like everyone said it would be. This is good. God is good. In fact, here's some fruit. We brought back some fruit. Try some fruit. It's a good place. However, however, there's a lot of people there. And the people there are really, quite frankly, very, very scary. They're unbelievably carnal. They're strong. They're mighty. They're tall. They outnumber us. They devour one another. And surely they'll devour us. And Caleb says, you know what? I think we should do it. I think we should go in there anyway. But they decide to hold back at that time. They decide to hold back. And then if you read on, the people rebel. Okay, and God judges them, and there's all this stuff happening that takes us up through Numbers, through the book of Deuteronomy, up to Joshua, where Moses has died, and Joshua now says, you know what, we're going to give another go at it. And I'm going to send in some spies, I'm going to send in two spies, but you know what, instead of them coming back and telling the people what they found so that we can decide things by popular vote, I want them to come back and they're going to tell me what they find, and I, as the leader, am going to decide if we're going to go and do this thing. So the spies are sent into the land of Canaan. Now, you think, you know what? Why were these people, the first sets of spies in the book of Numbers, why were they so turned off by what they found? Well, because it was the land of the Canaanites. And if you know anything about the land of the Canaanites, these people were literally hell-bent. Okay, they were devoted to everything that the Lord hated. They were evil, evil people, intentionally devoted to everything God hates. Idolatrous people, debauched people, noted for their perverted sexual practices and just general cruelty to common man. No love for God, no care for their fellow man, just noted for being cruel and violent people. There was a wall that surrounded the city of Jericho thick wall. In fact, there was actually two. I think one is 12 feet thick and the other one is six feet thick or something. We're talking a serious wall, okay? Not a wall on wheels, not some little piece of sheetrock. We're talking a wall here, okay? Do you know one of of their practices that I read about? They They would take live babies, put them in jars, and build them into the wall. As foundation sacrifices. Immoral, ungodly, carnal people. This was written about and then you can, it was in archaeological digs, we'll find the remains of, of little babies in broken jars. That's just the tip of the iceberg. So when we see the spies coming back saying, yeah, Nice fruit, cool land. The people, though, we can't really blame them. It was like they had no courage. Um, true. How would you have fared? When you see this stuff happening, and you're like, should we go in there? You know what? 
I feel like out here is better than, I feel like over here is not bad. Though over there it's flowing with milk and honey, but maybe it'll be dripping with milk and something sweet over here and maybe they'll just stay there. And, or you even have people in the rebellion, which we're not going to look at, wanting to go back where? To Egypt. You know, it wasn't that bad over there. <laughs> These were wicked, wicked, wicked people. And they were the Canaanites. And that's where we pick it up in Joshua chapter 2 because that's who Rahab was. So let's take a look at Joshua chapter 2. And I'm going to read to you uh, a portion of this story. Joshua chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, Go view the land especially Jericho. See, he sent, them, uh, he sent them secretly. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It's like, okay, I don't, Joshua didn't say do that, but I guess that's what you decided what would be best to do. Sent two spies. So you see that? Like, right, I love when the Bible does that. So he sends two spies secretly to Shittim, uh, from Shittim as spies saying, go view the land from Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute. It's like, wait, what? Came in the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to scratch, to scratch, to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house for they have come to search out all the land. Now you wonder why would the spies have said, hey, you know what? Let's go to a local prostitute's home as we seek to search out this land. But what you'll see later is that Rahab lived in the wall. Now, don't make it. So there are houses within this wall. She had a house in the wall. Rahab was a prostitute. There's many people who get uncomfortable and have tried to kind of baptize that fact and say, well, she wasn't really a prostitute. She was, she was a, more of an innkeeper. She might have had an inn, but what was coming in and out of that inn were people who were using her for sex. So she was just as dedicated to these evil practices in any other Canaanite, Rahab was a prostitute, or perhaps your version says harlot. But that's who she was. That's who she was. She was dedicated to the evil that we're talking about in this community, in this culture, and dedicated to profiting off of it financially. She was all in. And the fact that she had a house in the wall didn't mean that she was in the ghetto. It actually meant that she prospered. To live in the wall where her house was, this would have been prime real estate. Okay, so she, uh, she did well. Let's just say that. She did well for herself. She knew what she was doing. She had mastered this practice. This is Rahab, the prostitute. Why would two men go into this house? Two godly people go into this house. You say, well, maybe. No. No, not at all. Think about it. It's a pagan town. It's a pagan city. It's crowded with people. Who do you think is good at hiding people? Do you think this is the first time Rahab, think of her line of work. Do you think this is the first time Rahab in her line of work has had to keep someone in secret? Do you think Rahab is used to lying? Yes, she she would not be a good prostitute if she was. You think when some lady came to her house accusing her stuff, she she couldn't make up a lie on the spot to make sure that that customer came back and that she didn't rat him out. She was good at this. She would be comfortable taking in people and making up lies for them. This would be a place where visitors from the city would frequent, okay? A place where visitors of the city would frequent. So people would come into the city 
and it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's just an idolatrous, carnal city, to have a visitor passing through in the middle of rush hour to stop at the local prostitute's house is not uncommon. So this was actually, in my opinion, their way of blending in. She was going to go there. She had a house in the wall. They could go in there. They could scale down. They could scale the wall, take in measurements, look at things, and report back to Joshua so that he could prepare the people for battle and say, the wall is this thick. We got a good view on it. We looked out the window. We saw this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they go into her house. And she's probably ready to do what she typically does when people frequent her house. They were told in verse 2 of Joshua chapter 2 that it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So somehow, in some way, word got to the king that they were there. Verse 3, Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, so he sent people to her house, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Verse 4, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, true, the men, the men did come to me. They were here. They were in this house. Many men do that. This is not uncommon. I am Rahab. I am a prostitute. So yes, true, the men did come here, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly for they will overtake them, for you will overtake them. But verse six says, This was a lie. She had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So Rahab lies to these people, says, those men that you're looking for, they were here, but they left. Do you see them? I don't see them. They're gone. They left. Okay, you, and you really should get going because they left. And the sooner you get going, the sooner you can get to them. So go, get them. You could, and I've seen them. You can overtake them. They're little. You're big. You, you, you got this. Get out there. Go on now. Go on. Sends them on their way. They leave. Where are they really? Up on the roof of her house. And look at verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, Look, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. She's like, I know this is coming. I know God's got this. I know the way our people, in fact, look, she explains it in verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. She's like, I know your God. We've heard of your God. Uh, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt. And, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard, like word travels. Somebody walks through the sea on dry land, that's going to get around even before social media. So that's something that they're going to realize. Like, yeah, well, I heard that. <laughs> heard that your God did that. That was like awesome. So when we heard that he did that, look at verse 11. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Our hearts melted. That's not, oh, our hearts just broke because, wow, we're so touched by God. They were like, oh, snap, amongst other things. Oh, gosh. Oh, that's the God. It's his people who are coming to us. Our hearts melted, the word of God says. Verse 11. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Look at this in verse 11. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, 
you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a, a sure sign that, that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, deal. Our life for yours even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, which is probably not the first time she's done that, right? She probably had a go bag right there. Yeah, oh, you need to get out? Not, been, not my first rodeo, pal. Here, Boom, throws down that rope. She crawls that, they crawl down that, that rope. They're out of the city now. They escape. She lets them down. Her house was built into the city wall, verse 15, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you might go your way. And the men said to her, we will be guiltless with, this, with respect to this oath of yours because you have made us swear. Flip over to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, we see God make good on his promise. Joshua chapter 6, we see that the walls of Jericho came a-tumbling down. You might be familiar with that. And pick it up in verse 15. So they marched around the city seven days, blowing trumpets. People in Jericho are like, what the what? There's a lot of people walking around. Okay, that's fine. They're blowing their trumpets. Thank you. On the seventh day, though, something different happens. Joshua 6 and verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner. Here we go again. Seven times. Here we go again. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord had given you this city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only, what does it say that? Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. The wall comes tumbling down except for one section of that wall, right? With a scarlet rope, we didn't read about that, but with a scarlet a cord, thread, something, curtain hanging out of it so that they would see, oh, that's her house. That's where we're going. That's who we're going to save. And here Joshua is saying, listen, destroy the whole city. Destroy everything. Destroy everything in it. Plunder it. Take the things that we can use. Destroy every person in that city. Go. Hey, wait, wait. Except for Rahab the prostitute. Like, go get her. Bring her out. What a weird time, right, for your commander in chief to be sending you into battle to saying, destroy everything. Get it. Except the prostitute. Remember the prostitute? Go get the prostitute. Okay, good. Bring her out. So he calls her by name. Rahab the prostitute says, go get her and her family, but destroy everything else. Skip down to verse 23. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. Verse 25 says that Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belong to her, Joshua saved alive and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua whom Joshua sent to spy out in Jericho. Rahab the prostitute. Then we hear nothing about her until the genealogy that we read in Matthew chapter 1. And she's mentioned two more times in the, Old, in the New Testament in the book of James and by the writer of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews. Listen, if you walk out of here with one point today, if you walk out of here remembering one thing, here's what I would want you to remember. You are 
Rahab. I am Rahab. We are Rahab. Anyone who believes in Jesus, anybody who loves the Lord, listen to me. You have much more in common with Rahab than that which differs between the two of you. You are Rahab. I am Rahab. And if you don't get that point, you're going to look back at this story and drive out of here and say, well, listen, honey, it looks like Jesus even saves prostitutes. And it's just going to be a story, and you're just going to say, oh, that's a fun fact. But you have to understand, if you want to personally apply the great truth from this narrative, you need to identify with someone in this story. And I would say, more than the spies, hopefully more than the Canaanites, more than anyone in this story, you have more in common with Rahab than with anybody else. You are Rahab. Rahab. And failure to identify with Rahab will cause you to miss so much in this historical account. So I want to encourage you to understand that the person you have the most in common with in this story is Rahab. You are Rahab. I am Rahab. Think about this. Rahab was saved by faith. In Joshua chapter 2, in verse 11, when she says, For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She makes a profession of faith, saying, Listen, I know you guys got this land. I know that we've heard about your God who's awesome, who parted the Red Sea, allowed you to walk straight through on dry land. And listen, let me tell you what I, I... The Lord your God, he's God in the heavens and on the earth beneath. That was a key phrase for these people, these spies, to realize the Lord is doing something in this lady's life. She believes. Oh, my heavens. She's a Canaanite prostitute, and she believes. And we're saved by faith. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. Rahab's faith was exemplified by her actions. And she's referenced in Joshua chapter 2 about that. Joshua chapter 2, verses 4 and 9. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. As Christians, excuse me, that was Joshua chapter 2. As Christians, we show our faith by our actions. In James chapter 2, verses 24 and following, we see James say this. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You have that in common with Rahab as well. Saved by grace through faith, and faith produces action. Faith produces action. How I was talking to Katie, who gave our announcements a couple of days ago, thinking how kind of the Lord to have us, as she shares with us about the safe families meeting that's coming up, how kind of the Lord to have us look at someone whose first step of faith was to use her home. Opens up her home to strangers, not for the reason that she thought, but how God used her in that moment, how her faith produced instantaneous action. Faith without works is dead. And her faith produced within her action that she did for the Lord. You say, has anybody noticed that her first act of faith was a a what? A lie? It was. Rahab's not applauded for her ethics. She's applauded for her faith. She lied. Said, well, it was a good lie. She lied. God hates lies. He hates lies. He hates liars. So we're not going to try to explain that away and say that was actually an awesome lie. No, it was a lie. That God redeemed and used for his own purposes. 
her first act of faith was really like just okay. <laughs> she, she's still even mixed within that. You're still reminded of her fallen nature because she lied. A lie is a lie is a lie. It's never right to lie. Other people didn't lie and, 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 and honor the Lord. She lied and God redeemed it. So her first act of, but the bottom line is her faith produced action. Action. It wasn't just something that she, she just thought about and said, oh, wow, this is cool. I'm going to sit here and stare at my thumbs as I think about my faith. She did something with it. And as Christians, we show our faith is real by our action. Rahab's life could be spared only if she followed specific instructions given to her by Joshua's spies. Joshua 2 and verse 18 says, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. Our only hope to be saved from destruction is our one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus said to them, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts, we're told that there is but one name. There's salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven among, uh, given among men which men can be saved. She couldn't say, you know what, uh, where's that scarlet? Oh, whatever, here's an off-white cord. Uh, scar- <laughs> She's not going to take the chance, right? Which cord? This is going to save me from destruction? Okay, that was placed in a separate, take that out of the kitchen junk drawer, put that over here because we're not going to lose that one. Because when there's an emergency, we're going to throw that out the window. There's one way that I can be saved. That scarlet cord. And friends, you and I had but one way to be saved. And it's not Jesus or someone like Jesus. It is Jesus Christ who says that he is the way, not one of the ways, but the way, the truth. And the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Rahab's faith enabled her to turn away from her work, away from her culture, away from her people, away from her religion, and to the Lord. We see that the young men who had been spies went in, saved Rahab, brought her out, and she wasn't like, thank you, I'm going to go be a prostitute somewhere else now, thanks for not killing me. God was doing a work in her life. She was not only saved from physical destruction, but the Lord saved her from herself, saved her from her sin, because we see that she then lived and dwelt among the people of God, even to this day, as the writer of Joshua would say, even to this day. She then lived among the people of God. Her faith enabled her to say no to sin. Our faith enables us to say no to sin and yes to good works and becoming more like Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Romans chapter 8. We're told that those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. You are Rahab. Don't turn up your nose at Rahab. You're just like her. I'm just like her. And failure to do that and to take the amazing away from grace means probably in some way, shape, or form you think you merited it. I mean, I kind of had it coming. I had godly parents. I grew up in the church. I mean, I kind of had it coming because I'm kind of smart and I read this book and I get things usually the first. I kind of had it coming. Friends, you're just like Rahab. You're saved by faith. You are saved by grace through faith, and it's a gift. Rahab was a moral bottom feeder. And God used her for great things, and she's then added to the messianic line, which we'll look at in a minute. Rahab's legacy is not one of shame 
and reproach. She's a trophy of grace in the hall of God's transforming faith. Hebrews 11 and verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not... You think, can you drop the prostitute? Can we just call her Rahab? Right? I mean, can we just, like, do we look at each one? You know, here's, here's Joe. You know, Joe's been walking with the Lord for 20 years. Joe, the drug addict. Like, do we do that? Like, we don't do that. We don't bring up the past com- uh, all the time. But I really think the Holy Spirit, as he inspired the writers of Scripture, always wanted you to remember this, that's who she was. God is using Rahab. That's not another Rahab. Don't forget who she was. She was Rahab the prostitute, and she's in the hall of faith. She's Rahab the prostitute, and she's in the line of Christ. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. See, we talk a lot about Christ being our propitiation. He's a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. That God, look, we looked at that at Good Friday, right? That God loaded onto Jesus Christ on the cross all the death and judgment and penalty of our sin and that he absorbed that wrath on our behalf. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ died for sinners. He was my substitute on the cross. And we always, especially in our church, we always look at the justification by faith alone, through grace alone. We we should always remember the importance of justification. But you know what's also important to remember? That he absorbs our guilt. But listen to me. He also absorbs our shame. He absorbs our guilt. So it's not just, okay, he paid for the sins, paid in full. But there's also just a feeling of guilt and shame and reproach that Jesus Christ also takes care of on that cross, not just buying our sinful souls out of hell, but then also absorbing our shame. Romans 10 verse 11 says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He absorbs our shame. Hebrews 12 verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the Shame. He took on that shame. He absorbed that shame. So that even though Rahab was a moral bottom feeder, even though Rahab was from like not the ground zero of morality, but the basement, he now highly lifts her up as a member of his family. And she wears a robe of righteousness. Rahab the what? Rahab the prostitute wears a robe of righteousness even though she had the past that she had and each and every one of us who know and love christ have that same story even though you were guilty even though you were lost even if you were raised in a godly home then even though you were self-righteous even though you could dot every i and cross every t god loved sinners like you and like me and gives us a robe of righteousness and doesn't condemn us You are Rahab. I am Rahab. And we have this in common, that Christ absorbs our shame. Do you know how many people don't realize that and don't get that? Maybe you don't get that today. Maybe you say, I put my faith in Christ. I'm going to heaven. I love him. He loves me. But I forever bear the mark of who I was. And I'm ashamed. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Please hear that today. Please hear that today. Please look to Rahab the prostitute who is used by God to do great things. Please look at Rahab the prostitute who is in the messianic line of Jesus Christ and held up as a hero of the faith. Christ absorbs our shame.
If you would turn back to Matthew chapter 1, I want to take one final look at that genealogy. I want you to see stuff about the ladies that are listed in this genealogy. We spent the most amount of our time looking at Rahab, but there's four others. Uh, If you look at verse 3, you see it says, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. So, okay, well, that was the mom. Let me tell you about the mom. Tamar was another Canaanite. She was Judah's daughter-in-law. And God had taken the lives of her husband and, the next old, and his next oldest brother, Onan, because of their wickedness. So Judas promised this, uh, this young childless widow that his third son would become her husband and raise up children in his brother's name. Well, when Judah failed to deliver on that promise, Tamar decided to take things into her own hands. Do you know what she did? She posed as a prostitute. Posed as a prostitute to trick him into having sexual relations with her. And as a result of that, twin sons were born named Perez and Zerah. And Tamar and Perez joined Judah in the Messianic line despite prostitution and incest. That's Tamar. All right, these people put the fun in dysfunctional. That is Tamar. When you look at this list and this genealogy, this is Tamar that we're talking about. Oh, it's just Tamar. That's another lady. Now, if you look at verse 5, we say, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, we've, we've looked at, uh, Rahab's a person we've spoken about the most. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So Rahab's the person we spent our time looking at today. After Joshua 6, we don't hear much about Rahab. All we know is that she and her family were spared in the destruction of Jericho, lived among the people of Israel. She was outside the camp in Joshua 6.23, brought inside the camp in, in verse 25. And then we, we know that she's brought in, she's now a believer, she's converted, she's saved, she's living according to godly principles, she's going to heaven. And the next thing we see in Matthew 1, we see she got married. She married a man named Salmon. And now Rahab the prostitute is included in Jesus' line. Why? The saving, transforming grace of God. And do you know what happened? Rahab married a man named Salmon, and uh, they had, it says in verse 5, and Salmon the father of Boaz... By Rahab, Boaz was the son of Rahab and Salmon. And that brings us to Ruth, the third lady named in the, in the genealogy. Ruth was also a Gentile. She was a Moabite. Do you know where the Moabites came from? Okay, these were not, yeah, not cool. Do you know where the Moabites, do you remember Lot? Remember Lot, pillar of salt, his wife, she looked back. They're trying to escape Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot had two daughters that he, in his epic moment of fatherhood, decided to give to the people instead of the... Do you remember that in, in Genesis chapter 19, uh, when the people of God are coming in and trying to get the two men? Okay, they were lusting after these two men. These men were lusting after men in Genesis 19. This is where we get the term Sodomite. Sodomite, okay? So they're lusting after them. He says, no, 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 don't do that. Here, take my two virgin daughters. Awesome. Not really, but that's what he does. So then later on, in order for that line to... I should have put a rating on this message. In order for that line to continue, do you know what his daughters do? His daughters get his dad drunk, then they have sexual relations with their dad. And as a result of that, uh, one of the sons' name was Moab, and his descendants become one of Israel's greatest enemies. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, the Israelites are forbidden from ever taking in a Moabite, ever. 
So when Boaz takes Ruth in, he's basically harboring an illegal. He effectively breaks the law, takes her in, and what's the result? She's included in the Messianic line as well. More grace. And she becomes the grandmother of King David. So do you see God's providence working through this line? She becomes the mother, the great-grandmother of King David. You say, what do you mean King David? What, how does that have to do with any woman in this? Well, it says King David and David in the latter part of verse 6 was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah was Bathsheba. Poor thing. Okay, all of a sudden, she's, geez, uh, and I, I won't tell you the whole story, but David sends her husband to the front line so that he dies in battle, so that he can then be with this lady that he had been lusting after. This is David, the man after God's own heart. Epically falls. Gets with Bathsheba. They have a baby. Their baby's name is Solomon. So God kind of worked that out as well. She's included in the Messianic line. That's the fourth woman. And the fifth woman is Mary. What kind of shame and reproach does she have? She didn't do anything to deserve it. But lest we forget... (laughs) She brought our Savior into the world via pregnancy out of wedlock. In a shame-based culture, that's a bad deal. Five outcasted women in the line of Christ. Reminding us of a very simple fact. That God doesn't use the perfect and oftentimes perfects the used. He doesn't use the perfect, the people who have the perfect background, the perfect story. They've always made the right decisions. But oftentimes he goes and reaches way down, pulls people way up and perfects them in Christ so that they could be used for greatness. And that's what this genealogy reminds us of. That's what these women remind us of as we look back. We look at verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, fellow Rahabs, because of him, not because of our good works, not because of our morality, not because of our outstanding behavior, But because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. What about you? What about you? Is there shame in your life that needs to be laid at the foot of the cross, that you need to give to Christ, that you need to trust that he has absorbed, that he has absorbed not only the wrath that was headed your way as a sinner, but also the shame and reproach that comes from us just being us. Jesus takes that on. He absorbs that for us. Is that something that you need to hear. Is that, is that the aspect of the word of God that hits you the most today, that your shame need not be yours anymore? Or is the fact that you realize you really are more like Rahab than perhaps you even thought? You really are more like Rahab, comma, 
the prostitute, comma, than you ever thought, even though that may not be a part of your past, present, or future at all, but you're saved by the same grace through the same faith as God pours out his grace upon undeserving sinners like you and like me. And lastly, maybe you are more like Rahab than any of us even know. Maybe you're on the wall, in or out, and you're thinking there is no way on God's green earth that God could ever love me, that even if I put my faith and trust in him, even if I literally believe in him, that's fine, but I've got a past miles long. I am that moral bottom feeder. I have a record of transgressions in my mind that that only I know about. Well, I have news for you. God knows about them too. And God wiped away the writing of requirements, wiped away sins, made you whiter than snow through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's not about you and it's not about me, but it's about him and what he has done for sinners, look at me, like you, because you are Rahab, I am Rahab, and God loves and saves and uses for his glory people like Rahab, people like you, and people like me. Father, we come before you looking back on how you've acted throughout redemptive history, Lord, so grateful for the grace that you've shown your people. So grateful, Lord, for the fact that even Rahab would be saved, that even Peter would be saved, that even any of us have hope and help through Jesus Christ. Lord, would you take this message of truth and would you preach it to people's minds and hearts in a way that I can't? Holy Spirit, would you use the truth of this narrative to boldly affect our lives as we look back upon the grace that we've been given. We look forward to the grace that we need. Lord, help us in our weakness find strength in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.